This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 9, Characteristics of the Dutch Experience. The UP had a diversity of faiths. Despite Weber defining the work ethic as Protestant, there were many Roman Catholics and also numerous religious refugees, Huguenots, Flemings from Antwerp, Sephardic Jews. These were people who often had sophisticated skills in accounting, banking, insurance, bringing capital and connections, both commercial and cultural. An international Jewish network stretched from Chennai, Madras, on India's Coromandel coast, to Amsterdam. Amsterdam was the world's largest Jewish city, the so-called Jerusalem of the West. The Dutch were both tolerant and prosperous. A shortage of labor leads to high wages. Hence, people wanted to enter rather than leave. In 1650, around one-third of Amsterdam was foreign-born. But all became Dutch, that is, developed a sense of Dutchness. Perhaps manning the dikes gave a sense of communal enterprise based on the marvelous control of water. The dike took the place of the wall in defining the community, promoting social cohesion and common effort, forming a landscape created by the shovel but sustained by the windmill which would become an icon of the nation. Now perhaps it is the wind farm with its towers conspicuous everywhere. The nation becomes a vast warehouse, a place for grading, finishing, weaving, blending, sorting, repackaging, and reshipping. The Dutch exhibiting astonishing skill in merchandising that no other contemporary European state could match. This was all about process, and for the Dutch, process becomes product. Merchandising matured into more sophisticated services. Innovative and adept at trade in futures and options, the Dutch even had a word for it, windhandel, because neither buyer nor seller saw real goods dealing only in air. Another institutional innovation was the first modern corporation, the Dutch East India Company, Vereinige Ostindische Company, the world's first multinational company with the first corporate logo that I know of, Operating overseas, the VOC was a quasi-governmental chartered company, fusing the public with the private, a means of tapping private capital while exercising political authority and military power, a state within a state, a semi-detached empire. With multiple ownership, permitting risk-sharing, and shares as small as one two-hundredth, a lowly carpenter could hope to make his fortune. The Dutch invested heavily in their navy, which enjoyed many successes. They developed a convoy system to protect merchant ships 
and use privateers to attack others. Pete Hine being the most famous. He seized a Spanish treasure fleet en route from Mexico carrying 120 tons of pure silver. Even recently, Dutch schoolchildren would sing about Piet Hein. His name was short, his fame was great, great, he won the Spanish silver fleet. The Dutch ideals were security and stability, and they invested heavily in those goals. Defense and war consumed a big chunk of GNP. In per capita terms, they spent more than any other state. Hence, they tolerated heavy taxes. Success began with exploiting the ocean as source. The fishing trade is a brutal but effective teacher of seamanship and navigation, and the Dutch were heavily engaged in it. Herring provided both food and a cash crop for a huge market. One foreign contemporary said, the Hollanders fish more gold and silver out of the sea than other countries dig out of the ground. The Dutch preserved their fish catch by salting. Fish were pickled and barreled, English words of Dutch origin. Fleets could thus work farther from home and market the product at a distance. Changing tidal patterns in the 16th century caused herring shoals to stop going into the Baltic as they had during earlier times. This happened quite abruptly and to the great advantage of Holland, an example of the unforeseen stroke of good fortune, often so important in history. Amsterdam was built on herring bones, they say. Like Venice, it was originally ringed by marshes and salt water. Both cities were built on wooden piles driven into the mud and intersected by a network of canals. A long, protected water approach sheltered Amsterdam from storm and piracy. The city is not overwhelmed by monuments or powerful architecture. No grand avenues offer sweeping prospects or provide places to parade. There are no great palaces or tombs. Only two important public buildings are exceptions. The town hall, ultimately the royal palace, and the admiralty with its huge naval magazine stand as monuments to Amsterdam's seaport identity. Cobbled streets and sidewalks lined with a rich tracery of bordering trees soften any harshness or regimentation of the architecture, interlaced by a geometric system of concentric canals. Lewis Mumford, in his monumental work, The City in History, proclaims Amsterdam as one of the greatest examples of the town planner's art. Capitalism's one outstanding urban achievement, he declares. Amsterdam becomes a threefold center of the European economy, a commodity market, a shipping center, a capital market. 
European coinage then being chaotic, in 1586 the Dutch began minting a standardized gold coin, and they're still doing it, a coin of unchanging weight and purity that was internationally accepted, indeed sought. In 1609, the Dutch founded the Bank of Amsterdam, where depositors were allowed to draw checks against their accounts. The first component of Dutch success being fish, a second was the Baltic trade, deemed the mother trade, a staple because it provided the resources, naval stores, pine sap, necessary for ship construction and the creation and sustaining of Dutch oceanic power as well as essentials for the Dutch table. The Dutch built their ships with Baltic pine and oak, and they baked their bread with Polish wheat and Polish rye. Timber and grain being bulk commodities, items of low value by weight, required a large tonnage, which the Dutch were ready to supply, proving themselves adept at dealing with economies weaker or less developed than their own. The Dutch could feed themselves on grain cheaply grown and cheaply imported and devote their own precious agricultural space to lucrative cash crops. The Baltic was frozen over for seven months a year, but oceanic advantage offset seasonal liability. Iberia became of special importance, Portugal being a source of salt. The salt trade was a natural accompaniment to fishing. Portugal also provided Asian imports. Portugal was a market, too, as deficit producers being consumers of foodstuffs and manufacturers. All Portuguese energies went into supporting, defending, and exploiting their global network, and the Dutch moved into the entrepreneurial gap. In the 17th century, the Dutch merchant fleet was perhaps around 2,000 ships, the total of all others. The standard ship was the flute, round of stern, broad of bottom, narrow of deck, Its hold was almost rectangular in shape for maximum cargo. Although scornfully dismissed as an ocean-going barge, the flute was cheap to build and cheap to operate. It could be handled by a small crew. This was significant because labor costs, feeding, and wages were the most expensive item in shipping. Ten crew on a flute could do the work of 30 on ships of comparable capacity. Many foreign seamen sailed on Dutch ships, even from as far away as the Philippines, illustrating again that the merchant marine is the most international of economic enterprises. The Dutch kept merchant ship construction costs low by using standardized designs that meant interchangeable spare parts. They used pine, not expensive oak. They pegged with wood, not iron. The ships were cheaply rigged also. The Dutch wove and cut their own sailcloth, 
spun their own hempen rope, forged their own iron anchors. They also used the most modern technology, power tools, the windmills, inspired by the needs for drainage and land reclamation, also provided power for mechanical saws and hoists in shipyards. This illustrates the germ of Dutch technological success, a mechanization of wood and wind. The dynamic of internal politics was the contest of Holland with Amsterdam as its core, along with Zeeland and Friesland against the four others in cultural conflict. Geography delineated the difference, the seaboard versus the inland. The oceanic commercial decentralizing region versus the continental military centralizing one. Monarchical versus Republican. The modern bourgeois state versus a more traditional feudal state. And the long struggle for independence. Armies won the war and were needed to guard the frontier and to enable the nation to survive. The Dutch Republic, the seven united provinces, sarcastically called disunited provinces because each was jealous of its independence. Each had an executive, the stadtholder, elected for life. Usually most selected the same one, the Prince of Orange, a landed feudal nobleman hoping to become a true king. But merchants formed effectively the top of society. They were equal in prestige to landed gentry or high clergy and a class open to talent. The UP in its 17th century golden age remains a republic with an uneasy coalition that worked by consensus. Local loyalties, city or province, took precedence over national. The Dutch were singularly non-nationalistic. They were not driven by dynastic ambitions or imperial dreams. They failed to forge a highly centralized state system, but initially profited from being a small country. The UP were not the political threat to continental balances of power that others like France were. They built their own land, thus their home territory was not contested by others. Nonetheless, they were embroiled in competitive European politics, inevitably, inexorably, just because they were where they were. Join us next time for episode 10, when we'll think about Dutch culture and ponder why this unlikely successful state began to decline. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.